I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're looking at four passages, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this is the New King James Version of the podcast. If you like the King James Version, that's available also. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, down through chapter 4, verse 11. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. And then Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And then finally, John chapter 1, verses 15 to 51. In these passages, here's what we're going to be looking at today. These events take place previous to the first Passover festival during Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist prepares the Jews for the Messiah in this passage. Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. Then Jesus calls his disciples. And then finally, Jesus is tempted by Satan. These passages mark the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. He goes to Jerusalem for his first Passover in John chapter 2, beginning with verse 12 down through verse 25. The sequence of events that follow these passages may be found beginning in John chapter 2. Now we'll be looking, first of all, at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, and Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. These are listed in a table in parallel on the written notes of BibleTrack.org. First, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now let's go over and read the same account from Mark, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt round his waist, 
and he ate locust and wild honey. Now let's go over to Luke's account in Luke chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iturea, and the regions of Trachonitis and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire." Well, John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus. In this passage, we see the purpose of John the Baptist's ministry manifested as the forerunner of Jesus, the Messiah. Although Mark chapter 1 verse 2 is taken from Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, the detailed verses following are taken from Isaiah. He had prophesied of the coming Messiah and restoration of Israel in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 is actually quoted here in reference to the Messiah. When John the Baptist quotes Isaiah in Matthew chapter 3, 3, Mark 1, 3, and Luke 3, 4, it's clear to his listeners that he's introducing Jesus as the Messiah. Also notice the call John makes according to Matthew chapter 3 verse 2 when he says this, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you simply cannot understand the Gospels without understanding specifically what the kingdom of heaven really is. Remember this definition. The kingdom of heaven is the literal establishment of the messianic rule over all the earth. It's not a vague reference to believers going to heaven when they die. It's literally the messianic promise of the Old Testament prophets being fulfilled. Luke continues his account in verses 5 and 6 by citing two additional verses from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 4 and 5. Those are verses that John quoted that day. Now, Luke alone is quite interested in lending his readers a leadership perspective, the leaders in the region during that period of time. And I've included an information box from Easton's Bible Dictionary on the people of Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, on the written notes of BibleTrack.org. The religious system under the Sadducees and Pharisees, well, it was a mess. Their standards of righteousness were superficial, and their religious system was not open to change. Then here comes John the Baptist. Nothing conventional about him whatsoever. Dressed weird, had an unusual diet, and he's calling upon them to repent. Literally, he's calling upon them to turn to God. What? They thought they had a corner on God. This could be trouble. 
John makes it worse when he calls the Sadducees and Pharisees a generation of vipers in the King James Version, but in the New King James it calls them a brood of vipers. The Greek word genemata means um, offspring. And uh, he adds, and, and don't tout your ancestry back to Abraham. You need to repent. So what was this baptism all about? It was custom among the Jews to require proselytes to Judaism to be baptized. John's baptism is not a picture of today's believer's baptism. I've heard preachers refer to John's requirements that they bring forth fruit or actions that are worthy of repentance prior to their baptism as being the same standards for new believers today. These preachers require a waiting period before they will baptize new converts to make certain they live the appropriate lifestyle first. They base this requirement on John's words in this very passage. Peter required no such thing on the day of Pentecost, by the way, in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 to 41. To make such a requirement is to take Scripture out of context. John had already addressed their wickedness, and he was now calling upon them to turn from their wickedness and be baptized. Their pride of heritage and being the children of Abraham was no substitute for an individual authentic relationship with God. So what is it exactly these people are supposed to do? Well, let's look at Luke's account, chapter 3, verse 10. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has the food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reason in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. John uh, knew their corrupt condition. A relationship with God ought to foster positive attitudes toward others. In these verses, verses 10 through 15, we find a record of the specifics to their questions. The question was, what shall we do then? These suggestions were by no means meant to be a comprehensive plan for salvation for these people, but merely a declaration to expose their wrong attitudes toward God and to demonstrate what will follow when a person authentically seeks to please God with his life. Getting their hearts right with God would serve to make them receptive to the first advent of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Then we find baptized by the Holy Ghost, the occurrence of that in Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, Mark 1, 7 and 8, and Luke chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Let's read those verses. First, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water into repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his weed into the barn, but he will burn up the chafe with unquenchable fire. Now over to Mark chapter 1, verse 7. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, 
whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now over to Luke chapter 3, verse 16. John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat to his barn, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. Here John the Baptist makes a differentiation. He's baptizing in water those who repent. However, he's introducing Christ. Christ is the English transliteration for the Greek word for Messiah. He's introducing Christ who will do a supernatural baptism, a baptism by the Holy Spirit. Ghost and spirit, the King James Version has ghost there. Ghost and spirit come from the exact same Greek word pneuma. John also mentions fire and a fan. It's an agricultural analogy. The fan or the winnowing fork was used to sift the chafe from the wheat. And then the chafe was burned in the fire while the wheat was preserved. Get the picture? The Messiah, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will accurately separate believers from the wicked. And the wicked, well, that's kind of self-explanatory, don't you think? Hey, John, this kind of preaching could land you in prison. And we see in Luke chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, that in fact it did. So in Luke's account in verses 18 through 20 of chapter 3, we see that hard preaching leads to hard time. Verse 18. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this above all, that he shut John up in prison. I guess everybody understands that when a preacher ruffles the feathers of the influential, well, bad things come with the good. This time it's a woman, Herodias, who's not a fan of the message John the Baptist is preaching. And here's why. Herodias had been married to a guy named Philip, who was the half-brother of Herod the Tetrarch. Herodias left Philip for Herod. Philip and Herod were sons of Herod the Great, the man who had attempted to orchestrate the death of the Messiah by having all the babies murdered after the birth of Jesus. John's preaching here is very convicting to Herod and Herodias because of their disdain for the marriage vows. So John the Baptist, he's imprisoned. After only a few months of preaching that introduced Jesus as the Messiah, the preaching ministry of John the Baptist came to a close. John remained in prison until he was beheaded. Over in Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 through 12, we get that account. Then, Jesus arrives to be baptized. We find this account in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. First, Matthew chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan, to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, 
And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now over to Mark's account, Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 9. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now over to Luke chapter 3, beginning with verse 21. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, and while he prayed, the heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. So, why would Jesus feel the need to be baptized? When John brings up that very point, Christ replies, For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It's important to understand this baptism of Jesus. Was he being baptized with water unto repentance, as John the Baptist was pleading for the people to do? Nope. Jesus was sinless, perfect, had nothing to confess or repent from. Well, then why? Here's what I think is meant by Jesus' baptism being executed to fulfill all righteousness. Old Testament priests were washed with water and anointed with oil as part of the sanctification process for the priesthood under Aaron, and that's according to Luke chapter 8, verses 6 through 36. Then we see in Hebrews chapter 7 that Jesus was a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. I'm convinced that the same ritual observed under Aaron is observed supernaturally here. John baptizes him, the priestly washing. Then, instead of being anointed with oil, God actually sends a dove to light upon him while God utters the words, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This baptism by John was necessary to fulfill the law regarding priests, to fulfill all righteousness. Now, here's another important point about baptism. We, as Christians, aren't baptized because Christ was baptized. Our baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see that in Romans chapter 6. This baptism by John marked the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry as our great high priest. Incidentally, note the words of God saying, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. This undoubtedly reminded those who heard the voice of Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 2 was recognized by everyone, all the scholars in that day, as a messianic psalm. Then we see the contrast between law and grace in John's gospel, beginning with chapter 1, verse 15. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. In this passage, we see John contrasting the message of Christ as being one of grace and truth, while the message of Moses 
was one of law. It's important to take note that this distinction was made at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. We see it all through the Gospels. Verse 18 is sort of curious here. It says, No man hath seen God in any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. I'm convinced that any form of God ever seen by man was a manifestation of the only body the Godhead has ever had, and that's of Jesus Christ himself. If you'd like a fuller explanation of this issue, then look at my notes on Hebrews chapter 7. There's a link here on this page of the written notes of BibleTrack.org. that you can click there and go read it. John makes the same statement in 1 John chapter 4 verse 12. In both passages, John seems to be making a distinction between Jesus incarnate and God in his essence, his spirit being. Jesus later proclaims to the Samaritan woman that God is a spirit in John chapter 4, verse 24. In John chapter 1, beginning with verse 19 down through verse 28, we're going to identify the prophet and the Messiah. An important distinction here as far as Old Testament prophecy goes. Verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize, if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose, these things were done in Bethabara beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Well, the Pharisees sent some priests and Levites out to interrogate this wild-looking man, John the Baptist, who was preaching and baptizing. We're told in verse 28 that this incident takes place on the Jordan River at Bethabara, about 18 miles east of Jerusalem. Now let's take a look at uh, two verses. First, the verse that John quotes in John chapter 1, verse 23, when he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. First, let's look at what he said. He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now let's look at what he quoted in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Well, as you can plainly see, John professes to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, a prophecy also made in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, and also in Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. Those verses are concerning the coming of the Messiah. Now here's the confusion. These priests and Levites are familiar with Malachi's prophecies. It appears from this passage that the Pharisees differentiated between Elijah of Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 and a second person, the messenger of Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, 
as we see here in this passage in verse 21 and verse 25, the differentiation. So they reason if John the Baptist is introducing the Messiah, and the Messiah here is to judge the nations and establish the throne of David, then John the Baptist must be Elijah according to Malachi. But John says he's not Elijah here in verse 21. Well, was he or wasn't he? Now the answer is, he could have been. You see, Malachi's prophecy looked all the way into the millennium. When John the Baptist and Jesus came, the Jews did have an opportunity to receive Jesus as their Messiah, and that would, of course, have ushered in the rule of Israel over the earth under the Davidic throne. However, it had already been prophesied that they would, in fact, reject, and Christ knew that well in advance, of course, and therefore John the Baptist would have fulfilled the Malachi prophecy had the Jews readily accepted the Messiah, but they didn't. So John then was not Elijah. Now, if you'd like a full explanation on this issue, I've written an article entitled, Was John the Baptist Elijah? You can find it under the topic section of BibleTech.org, or there's a link here on the written notes of BibleTech.org for today's reading. I'd suggest that you go read that article. Then John gives his testimony regarding Jesus in John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. Verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now, from the wording of verse 29, it would appear that the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist had already occurred on a previous day. Now it's time for John the Baptist's personal testimony regarding Jesus himself in verses 30 through 34 here. He indicates that God himself had told him to be on the lookout for the dove and voice from heaven miracle, which occurred at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, Mark 1, 9 through 11, and Luke 3, 21 and 22. We just looked at those verses. When he saw that miracle, he knew without question that Jesus was the Messiah. Now in John's account, the subject changes. The calling of disciples, verse 35, chapter 1. Again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, Teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. 
Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now we have here John's account of the circumstances around the calling of four of the twelve apostles. That's Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. By the way, uh, with regard to Simon Peter, Jesus assigns him an Aramaic name, Cephas, which means rock. The Greek equivalent for rock, the uh, rock is a neuter noun Petra, to make it a masculine gender noun, Petros. Uh, that's Peter's name, and it means rock. The Greek equivalent for Cephas in uh, Aramaic rock is Peter or Petros in Greek. Then we find the whole list of the twelve disciples in Mark chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. I've listed them there. You can read them if you like on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today. In John chapter 1, verse 41, it's interesting to see that Andrew sought out his brother Peter to inform him that he'd found the Messiah. Here we see also the definitive statement that Christ means Messiah. Philip confirms this finding in verse 45 with an additional comment that's worth noting. He points out that this is the Messiah of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write. Of course, we're well aware of the numerous Old Testament prophecies from the prophets concerning the coming Messiah. But what about his reference to Moses here? Well, it's obvious from this reference that the Jews of Jesus' day understood Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 15 through 19, to be a prophecy of the coming Messiah. As a matter of fact, I've written an article entitled, Moses Prophesied the Messiah, and uh, there I deal with Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, and uh, you may want to go read there and see the numerous other references. I find this passage particularly interesting in two respects. First of all, I feel relatively certain that the Israelites to whom this prophecy was first given must have thought that Moses was talking about Joshua, who, by the way, succeeded him after his retirement, so to speak. That description certainly fits him. However, Philip believes what apparently many, if not virtually all Jews in his day believed, that Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 through 19 is a direct reference to the Messiah. 
To make this discussion even more interesting, consider this. Jesus is a Greek transliteration for the Hebrew name Joshua. So just as Joshua led Israel into Canaan, so will Jesus, or the Hebrew equivalent Joshua, lead Israel into the millennium. We do find that Jesus, after his resurrection, in fact confirms that Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, is absolutely a reference to himself. He does so in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Here's what he says there as he's talking to the uh, men on the road to Emmaus. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, if you'd like a more comprehensive look at this issue of Moses prophesying the Messiah, then look at the article. Verse 46 is amusing as well when Nathan questions Philip regarding Jesus. He says this, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Hey, what do you have against Nazareth anyway? Well, probably being unaware of Jesus' Bethlehem roots at this time, it was a fair question. I mean, a Messiah from Nazareth? Jesus' very first words to Nathanael are an interesting play on words when he says of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Jesus is undoubtedly making a reference to Isaac's words concerning Jacob in Genesis chapter 27, verse 35. There he said, Your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. When Nathanael wonders how Jesus was able to make such a correlation, having just met him, Jesus reveals to Nathanael in verse 48 that he had a vision of Nathanael under a fig tree. As we see in verse 49, well, that settles it for Nathanael. Next, we're going to be looking at uh, three different accounts of the temptation of Christ in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, and Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. First, Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now over to Mark, he just gives it two verses. Verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan who was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered to him. Now over to Luke's account of the temptation of Jesus, 
beginning with Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him upon a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Well, of course, Satan is determined to discover the credentials of Jesus as well. After all, Satan is not omniscient. We see in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, that we find a clear characterization of the nature of the Messiah. Those two verses say, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David, and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So I'm guessing this episode is Satan's attempt to see exactly what he's dealing with here. Is Jesus God in the flesh or not? If Jesus will succumb to temptation and sin, in other words, abandon his messianic mission, then he's not really the promised Messiah. Now, you must keep in mind that Satan isn't omniscient, nor is he omnipotent, nor omnipresent. However, he does know the scripture, and he has talked with God, but he's not omniscient. Contrary to popular belief, he can't even read your thoughts. So, Satan is using the conventional method of Messiah testing in this passage of scripture. And what are the results here? Well, the results are that Jesus is 100% Messiah, God in the flesh, and he won't perform any of these parlor tricks to obtain a big prize from Satan. These temptations placed before Jesus follow 40 days of fasting. It's worth noting that these 40 days match those of Moses when he ascended to Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 24, verses 12 through 18. As a matter of fact, we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 9, that Moses also fasted for these 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I won't read the verses in their entirety, but let it suffice to say that Jesus here quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and Deuteronomy chapter 10 as he's answering Satan's temptations. It's also interesting to note, however, that Satan himself quotes scripture in this verbal duel. When he says in verse 6 of Matthew's account, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. 
That's a quotation, by the way, from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Just goes to show you, quoting scripture out of context is something that, well, something that even Satan does. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.